Good morning. To get started, we are continuing our group on uh, the spiritual gifts found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and uh, Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. So I had handed out a paper last week that gave you the breakdown of the gifts in each of the four texts. I say four texts because 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 gives you one list, and then 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 gives you a separate list. And so there's really four different locations where in the New Testament the gifts of the Spirit are listed for us. So we spent some time last week going over those. More uh, general, we're going to get a lot deeper now as we get into what I gave you, the five categories. Now, if you remember, I stated the five categories are purely made by me. Uh, These are not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do you find a categorization of spiritual gifts. You just find lists of them. And so I have taken the spiritual gifts and placed them in one of five categories, more just for study purposes than a theological reason. So let's start with the gifts of position that you see there at the top. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, we read, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we're going to talk about these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There's a lot of confusion surrounding, I believe, at least two of them. And uh, we're going to clear up maybe some confusion you didn't know you had about the other three. So let's talk about the hardest one, and that's the apostles. (laughs) There are many churches today with many leaders in those churches who refer to themselves as apostles. And they say, hey, my, my name is Apostle so-and-so, and glad to meet you. And, and even their wives are often referred to as apostles, the husbands and wives both. You're going to find that to be quite prevalent in um, Pentecostal churches. It's not the only place, but definitely uh, very much so. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to see verse 17. Actually, let's, let's jump to verse 16. So the apostle Peter stands up in verse 15 and tells everyone, hey, it says in verse 16, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was to guide them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us, and have obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and following headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. So of course we're speaking of Judas the traitor, Judas Iscariot, and his suicide. Now if you read the Gospels, you'll find Judas hung himself. So how is it that he hung himself and then fell headlong and his bowels burst out? Well, he hung himself, no one moved his body, His body rotted and in time uh, just came apart from the rope. I don't know if the head and and torso in some way something happened, but as the body fell, uh, it burst open because it was so rotten. Now, why people just let him hang there, I do not know. But uh, that's the only conclusion that I can come to from the various texts that we see referring to Judas. And so the Apostle Peter, he, he stands up. By the way, this is over at least 40 days since that occasion because Jesus had, had been with the apostles for 40 days. And then Acts chapter 1, he ascended. And it seems that immediately after, 
uh, Peter has this conversation, right? So uh, over 40 days, Judas has been gone. They finally say, we got to do something about this. We have to fill his position. And so verse 19, it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field called in their proper tongue, uh, Asel Adama, that is to say, field of the blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric, or leadership, or spiritual authority, let another take. So as Peter says, hey, Psalms prophesied that there would be an open position to be filled, <laughs> that Judas would, they didn't know his name at the time, but that, that, that someone in a position of authority would be killed, would die, and his, his leadership should be given to someone else. And Peter says, now that we are in this moment, we know that that prophecy is speaking of now. So let's fill that position. Now, <clears throat> before we go any further about what were the qualifications for this position, I want to give both sides to this idea of an apostle. I don't believe apostles are for today. I believe that there was originally 12. I believe that one killed himself, and I believe that David prophesied it should be given to another man. They're going to choose another man to be given the title of apostle. But there is a 13th apostle that comes along. Who is that? The apostle Paul. And so some might have the impression that, well, if there is 12 and then 13, why can't there be 14 and 16 and 20 and 30 and 100 and, and so on and so forth? I don't see where God's word ever gives permission for more than 12. This was a mistake by hasty men. And Peter had some faults, and unfortunately, one of them was being hasty. And Peter, in his hastiness, said, let's fill the position now. If they had just waited some months, that position would have been filled by God himself. You know, it's also interesting, even though Peter, in his hastiness, filled the position, that didn't keep God from bringing the right guy anyways. <laughs> so basically, they just had an extra apostle lying around now because the apostles did not ask God. Well, you say, Pastor Russ, they did ask God. Let's see here. In, uh, we're in Acts chapter 1, verse 24. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two men thou hast chosen. All right, so they did ask God. But what exactly did they ask God? They said, God, we've made a decision. Now give us your stamp of approval on which one's best. You know, God, I'm going to move. I'm going to move. You tell me which state I should move to. Here's my final two choices. You tell me which one. God, I am going to quit my job, and I have two jobs available. You tell me which job. Yeah, young teen girl. God, I love both of these boys. You tell me which one to meet, but I'm going to marry both one of them, right? One of them is going to be my husband someday. You tell me which one. That's a dangerous prayer where you've already come to a place where basically God can't say no. God can only choose what you've approved of. And then you say, now, God, you take it from here. You take the final step, but I've got us to this point. A much better prayer life is God getting you to a place and then God saying, now, I've got some options for you. I'll let you choose which of these two you want. They're both good options. God says, I want you to do this. I'm going to give you a few, few choices. I'll let you make the final decision. But, but you need to include God in the beginning of the decision, not just the end, because then you can't blame God when the end of the decision goes wrong because you didn't include God through the entire process. And that's what we see with the apostles. They did not include God in the entire process. They made a decision. They were going to choose a new apostle, literally, like, at this moment. And then at the end, they said, all right, God, we're going to cast lots. Lots was kind of a, a, a scenario with, with um, you could say, 
heads or tails kind of thing, right? Not exactly, obviously. There's other things involved. But basically, it's going to be heads or it's going to be tails. And then the faith that the apostles was, if it was heads, it's because God wanted it to be heads. If it was tails, because God wanted it to be tails. Now, they did not flip a coin. That was not the casting of lots. But in a sense, there was going to be an answer. And their faith was that whatever answer came, it would be of God. So they chose two men. Verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, surnamed Justice, and Matthias. They prayed. They cast the lots. Verse 25, uh, we're told that they, he may take part of this ministry and apostleship for which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. We don't hear anything else about Matthias in the rest of Scripture. We hear a lot about the Apostle Paul, the man God ordained. We don't hear about Matthias, the man men ordained. Now, it could be said, well, if they replaced Judas when he died, why wouldn't you replace Peter when he died? And why wouldn't you place, uh, re- replace Matthew when he died and all the other apostles when they died? That could be said. I have some thoughts on that, but let's just take that to a little further. If that's the case, then how many apostles total should there be on the earth right now? Well, it should only be 12, in my opinion, because Matthias is a false, false apostle is a strong word. Uh, I would say misplaced apostle. So 12, if we were going to agree, and I don't agree with that statement, but if someone was just hard and fast, like, look, you can't say in Scripture that the other apostles were not to be replaced. And I agree. The Scripture does not say don't replace the apostles. I have other reasons for why they should not be. But if that was the route someone was going to go, and if they were going to say, must be replaced. All right, then I would take them to Acts chapter 1. I would say, all right, there should only be 12. 13 at the most if you want to include Matthias. And then who's the ones appointing the apostles? The apostles. Now, is that the right way? No, it should be God. We find that with the apostle Paul. So then God should appoint the apostle, and it should make it very clear, like he did with the apostle Paul and like he did with the original 12. Will you follow me? I'll make you fishers of men. Well, God can't make it clear today like he did with the original 12 because uh, he's no longer here. Well, then make it clear like he did with the Apostle Paul, road to Damascus kind of scenario. If you don't have one of those, you're not an apostle. That's in my opinion. But even if they said, no, no, that, that time's done, apostles approve apostles. Well, it didn't go so well for Matthias. We don't hear about him ever again. But even if that was the case, we're still down to only 12 at any given time on earth. Sue. That's not in Scripture. Not in Scripture. So they can call him whatever they want. doesn't mean that he was. In Scripture, Barnabas was never an apostle. A companion, a friend, an evangelist, not an apostle. Okay, so are there apostles today? There are people who call themselves apostles, and a whole lot more than 12. And who assigned them? I don't even know who assigned them. I assume other apostles, which goes to the whole Matthias thing. But it's just people assigning whoever they want to be apostles. All right, so we're still not done yet. Let me, let me keep going. Gladys, I'll let you ask a question. I may answer your question. All right, so in Acts chapter 1, even when the apostles did assign Matthias, what did they say about his qualifications? Verse 21 of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Basically, you need to have known Jesus personally, not like in prayer, and, and uh, through the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. No, there had to be a personal knowledge of Christ while he was alive. 
Well, I don't know of anyone that meets that qualification today. You say, well, but what about the Apostle Paul? He wasn't a follower of Christ. Nobody did know Christ personally. You know how? Christ came to him on the road of Damascus, and in, the, in his Gospels, Paul later relates how he was trained and educated by Christ himself in the wilderness. He didn't go to the road of Damascus, get blind, receive his sight, and then meet the, uh, Barnabas and, the, uh, you know, and start going on evangelistic trips right away. There was years in between that. And he fills in the gap for us and tells us during those years, I was basically being trained by God himself, by Christ himself. He was teaching me personally. So the Apostle Paul met that qualification. So there, there's just so much stacked against what I would say a legitimate assignment of apostleship today that um, I feel like the, the phrase apostle is just another way for the common man or woman to, to gain another title that keeps people under their thumb. Because the apostles had a lot of authority given it to them by God. And I believe in Scripture they even had authority over the elders, like the church pastors. I think that there was times where they ceded to the pastors, from what I can tell. But it seems like the pastors pretty much every time, if the apostle says it, we're going to do what they say because God's given them authority. That's not how churches should operate. And and by the way, it was not just the church in Jerusalem ceded to the apostles. The apostles are sending letters to other churches at Antioch and others saying, we give you approval or we say, please don't do this. The apostles were telling independent churches what they should and should not do. So if that was still going on today, then who is the apostle that we should answer to that tells this church and other churches in this community what we should and should not do and should, not, and should and should not believe, philosophically and theologically? Because apostles were not just pseudo-pastors. They were a higher level of spiritual leader for a time. And that time was first century, when the church was new and growing, and God wanted the apostles to help guide the churches in the right direction, and when the apostles died, that position died with them. I do not believe God intended for the apostles to assign other apostles, because if he did, they would have, and they did not. We don't see anywhere in Scripture the apostles ever assigning another apostle. And you say, well, but, you know, didn't, was there a chance where the other apostles died and were assigned then? No, we know. Remember, there was an apostle who was killed in the book of Acts. We're told he was martyred. And yet, no assignment, no reassignment. And so, I don't believe God intended for there to be apostles today, and I think it's the pride of man that has got us to this position where this title is abused and misused. But originally, apostles were God's leaders and God's, you might say, directors, trainers, professors of the next generation of spiritual leaders. And the apostles were to train all, as many pastors as they could, as many elders as they could, to take the church forward. All right, let's talk about prophets next. That word prophet is uh, found quite often in the Old Testament. We do find it even in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels. You find it in both Old and New Testament. That word prophet is relating to someone who has the ability to foretell this future, to speak of the future events. So we have the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. He's definitely a prophet as well as apostle because he prophesied of future events and was inspired in his prophecy and wrote it down. Now, by the way, much of the prophets, both Old and New Testament, 
were inspired and recorded their prophecies, the prophet Daniel. Even Moses is referred to as a prophet in Scripture, recorded for us prophecies. And so there are prophets in the New Testament. It seems maybe not all, but some of the apostles were prophets, which, by the way, right away tells us you can have more than one spiritual gift. And in first century church, you could have had more than one spiritual gift of what you might call authority, right? A prophet was a, was a one of authority. And so the Apostle John proves that. Now, a prophet is not just someone who teaches the truth. I've known pastors who stated, well, I, I'm a prophet. I'm a modern prophet. I speak forth the truth. No, no, no. Speaking forth the truth is a teacher. You might want to call yourself preacher. By the way, there is no preacher for spiritual gift. There's only a teacher spiritual gift. We're going to talk about teaching and preaching and what separates them. I think I mentioned it briefly. Did I mention it the other week? All right, good. We'll, we'll briefly discuss again for those that weren't here. Uh, but the, the term preacher is not a spiritual gift. It's only teacher. So to speak forth truth, you have the spiritual gift of teaching. You don't have the spiritual gift of prophecy. The spiritual gift of prophecy was the ability to foretell the future and the events coming true. In the Old Testament, God told the Jews there will be some who will call themselves prophets, and they will tell you of future events. He says you'll know they're true prophets when the events they foretell come true. And if they don't come true, kill them. They're false prophets. They will turn you away from me. Yeah, it was, it was no surviving a false prophet uh, claim, <laughs> at least if the Jews did their job. Unfortunately, we see them not often doing their job and false prophets running rampant. So, our prophets for today, I see them in the Old Testament. I see them in the Gospels. I even see them in the epistles. The Apostle John, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, is a book of prophecy inspired by a prophet, John. So, they're in the first century church. And it was a spiritual gift I believe God gave to Christians in the first century church. You say, Pastor Russ, why then and why not now then? It's a very simple answer. God has given us all of the prophecy that we need. It's been recorded, inspired, and preserved. It's in this book, the Bible. There is no longer a need for foretelling of events. I find that prophets often want to foretell of above and beyond future events relating to Christ's return that the Bible itself doesn't even mention. And that's ironic to me when the Bible itself, when Christ himself said, no man knows my return, <laughs> save God the Father. <laughs> and so how can a prophet, self-proclaimed prophet, said, I, say, I know when Christ is returning, when Christ himself said, no man does know my, my return? We can guess. We can look at prophecies and say, it seems to be close. And we can say that honestly. You know who else said that? The apostles back first century, <laughs> they also said it was close. They said it was imminent. Christians have been thinking Christ would return at any moment for 2,000 years. Think of this. Christ descends. His followers, including the apostles, 100 plus on that hilltop, looking up, staying there looking, what? For him to return right away. They literally thought he would go and come right back down. The angel had to arrive and say, he's not coming back today, all right? Go and do what he's asked you to do. He's not returning today. They literally thought he would be gone for less than a day. So the fact that you and I think that Christ could return at any time is nothing new, and we're not prophets for thinking that. A prophet is someone who's been given truth above and beyond their logic and reasoning that they foretell that comes true. 
And I do not see that in anyone today. Here's what I do see. I see wisdom. I see people seeing things about other people saying, you know what, I, that person's making bad choices. They're self-destructing. I know where that's going to end. They're going to leave the church. They're going to divorce their family, abandon their kids. And everything they say happens. That doesn't mean you're a prophet. It means you're smart. It means you're intuitive. It means you have wisdom about the nature of man. And you know what I find? A lot of uh, people who call themselves self-proclaimed prophets are just really good at reading people. And by the way, even the fake cultish, you know, tarot card readers, this is really good at reading people. They get basic amounts of information from you. Uh, they give general statements or even specific statements when, the more information they have. And they, they tell you what is most likely to happen doesn't mean it's a prophecy. So I do not believe God gives the gift of profit today either. So if God doesn't give the gift of apostle, and if God doesn't give the gift of prophecy, what other gifts are also not available today? We'll get into those at another time. We're not going to get into them this morning, but I do believe there are others that are not given today. So let's talk about some of these positions of authority that are still for today. And the first one that we have here that I believe is for today, we're again in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, if you want to see that list, is evangelist. Now, that word evangelist is used today differently than it was used in the first century. The word evangelist today is used in reference to a man who travels from church to church and preaches there for three days or a week, leaves and goes to another church and does that 48 to 52 weeks out of the year, traveling and evangelizing, and they often refer to themselves as basically just gospel givers. Much of their revival services are centered on salvation, the gospel, uh, Christ, sin, and, and that's all, these are all good truths. I have no problem with that. I do not see that in Scripture. What I do see is the gift of evangelism is given, and I believe the Apostle Paul had the gift of evangelism. And the Apostle Paul went to a church, planted the church. If the church was already planted, he helped train them literally there for sometimes over a year. He was a church planter. He was a church grower. He was a church sustainer. When I say grower, of course, God's the one growing the church, but he's the one doing the work of God, so God will grow the church. An evangelist, I think, is less of the position we think today in our 21st century because we've been conditioned by pastors and churches of old that evangel- an itinerant traveling preacher is an evangelist? No, he's not. An evangelist is a missionary. I'm fully convinced of that. We say Paul's missionary journeys. Well, the word missionaries, not in the Bible. You know what it is? Evangelism. Paul's evangelistic journeys would be the biblical term. Now, I'm not here to split hairs. I, you know what I mean. I know what you mean when we say his missionary journeys. But biblically, evangelist is a missionary. There is no missionary in the Bible, and there is no... Uh, 21st century style of evangelism in the Bible. There is men, Barnabas, Paul, Titus, Silas, others, you know, they're traveling and they're going to places and they're staying there. (laughs) And either staying there as a permanent pastor, like we find with Timothy, who's, I think, evangelist at first with Paul, right? And then he eventually plants roots and remains as a pastor. And and that is, by the way, another gift of the Spirit, uh, again, not preacher, but pastor. And so could it be that, that someone like Timothy had both gifts of evangelism and pastor? 
and then was an evangelist first and was a pastor second? Could be. I think what's more likely is that sometimes we do things we're not gifted in, but we do them because we love God. And then God eventually brings us to a place where we're working in our actual gift. It's also possible that God gives you a gift for a time and then replaces that gift with another for a time. That's a possibility. The Bible doesn't say that that could not be the case. I think what's more likely is the Apostle Paul, I'm almost convinced, had the gift of evangelism. I just see his heart. I see his, uh, what he writes, what he does, and it just screams evangelism. Timothy seems to be more of training under an evangelist, but when he's kind of let loose, Timothy almost immediately magnetizes himself to the, to the role of pastor, I think, which would have been his gift. And so he's attracted to that which he's gifted in, pastor, as opposed to doing more of what Paul did because that's not his gift. So is it wrong for a Christian to do work in an area that you were not spiritually gifted? No, it's not wrong. Best case scenario is that everyone in the church is doing what everyone's gifted to do. But with humanity and, and other issues going on, best case scenario doesn't always work out. And so we find ourselves doing things we're just not gifted to do until God brings someone along who is gifted. So the gift of evangelists, I believe, is not just the heart to see people saved, but the ability to, to make the gospel presentation clear, to, to respond to difficult questions and have difficult conversations so people can see Christ in a way they've not seen him before. But it's above and beyond that. It's more than just being able to give the gospel. I think it's the ability to, to actually train someone to be strong in the gospel themselves, which is what we find Paul doing. Leading people to the Lord, starting churches, and then training them. And an evangelist, you could say, was a trainer, a spiritual trainer. And that takes a gift. Because not everyone has the patience or the ability to train someone who's absolutely clueless about Christ and, and, and help them get to the next, not just one, but three, four, five next steps of their life. Basically train them to be able to train others. And so I don't see someone being able to accomplish that in one week of itinerant traveling preaching. <laughs> They're not training anyone to be an evangelist. They are essentially preaching convicting truth and then leaving. They're a teacher not an evangelist, like Billy Graham. And obviously, he has the term evangelist attached to him, as many have. I just don't see that scripturally uh, in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament. Any questions about those three? The evangelist, I believe, is for today, just not in the way it's used. Prophets and apostles. Any comments or questions? Sue? Yeah. So there's, 
Yeah. Okay, talk about a man named David Wilkerson who had a dream about New York City up in flames and then the tragedy of 9-11 eventually happened. When you give a general statement such as the world is someday going to experience some destruction or a city, uh, you're almost always going to be accurate. <laughs> and so that's not true prophecy. And you said the man didn't claim to be a prophet. I'm glad to hear that because I would say that's not prophecy. And uh, there are others who have, after 9-11, said, oh, I prophesied about that. I said New York City would go through some kind of tragedy. I mean, there's millions of people there. Of course there's going to be tragedies in New York City. Uh, so the people who want to be deceived will be deceived. People who stick to the truth of God's word will um, call out those false prophets. Yes. All right. So let's talk about this idea of a vision because that is often how it's used today. People will say, I've had a vision. Even those who don't claim to be prophets say, I have a vision often attached to a dream. Well, then, if you really want to be that adamant about it, if it doesn't come true, in the Old Testament, you'd be killed. And in the New Testament, we're not going to kill you, but I would definitely say that would uh, um, necessitate losing your membership <laughs> at a church. If you're going to call yourself a prophet and you're a false one, it comes to find out you're a false prophet, then you should not be an active member, especially not an active teacher with God's people. Now, here's the thing. They would say, well, I, know, I don't know when this could happen. It could be after my lifetime. Well, then, you know what? Don't even bother. We're not, give, me, give me some more specifics. Otherwise, uh, there's no way to, to know if you're a prophet or not, and we're not going to give you that title or believe you unless you can prove in your lifetime sooner than later that what you say is true and you know what you're talking about. This idea of visions of what could happen in the future, ooze and ahs, naive new believers often because they think that God has put his hand of blessing on you. And it's just people manipulating others. Yes, Gladys. Sure, lack of knowledge, self-deception. They've been deceived by someone else most definitely. But a lack of knowledge is your own fault. When you literally have the entire Bible available to you, and you choose not to search the scriptures, but just listen to what some other person told you about the Bible and go with it, then if you're ignorant, you have only yourself to blame. And there are a lot of ignorant teachers who have not done their own research. They only believe what they've been told. That's not true study of scripture. That's uh, disciples of men. And Christ said about those Pharisees who made disciples, he said, when you're done making disciples, you made them twice the followers of the devil than yourselves. Because essentially, it seems to me, these Pharisees train people to, listen, to say, listen to me, don't read the Old Testament text. And so these, these disciples are closer to Satan and further from the Bible because they're not encouraged to read the Bible or study it for themselves. There's a lot of churches where the pastor will not encourage you to read the Bible. They will discourage you. They'll just say, I'll tell you what you need to know. Whether outright or alluded to, I'll give you the answers you need. Don't study it for yourself because you're not smart enough to, to find out what you're reading when you do read it. Uh, it's very Catholic, the idea that the common man cannot understand Scripture. Well, if you read Scripture, you'd know uh, the common man who is saved has the uncommon filling of the Holy Spirit to uh, balance out the commonness of our souls, and the Holy Spirit will teach us. So any spiritual leader that, could, that would say a Christian does not have the ability to learn on their own themselves is a liar and a deceiver, or they don't know the Scripture themselves because the Bible says the opposite of that. Does God give teachers? Yes. Are teachers helpful? Yes. Are teachers necessary to learn? No. The Holy Spirit is our first teacher. Yes, Sarah. 
elder, pastor, minister? I do. So we're going to get to pastor. Let's just go ahead and let's just get there now. Pastor's the next one. So uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As I said, there was two that you, you knew there's some confusion surrounding, and three you probably didn't know. And now we're in the three you probably didn't know, and I hopefully cleared up confusion around evangelists you probably didn't know you were confused about. Uh, let's clear up some, some definitions and theology around pastor that maybe you didn't know you were confused about. So 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a very common text, of course. This is a true saying. Verse 1, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. That word bishop in today's 21st century is used heavily by the Catholics, and so almost every other religion stays away from it, unless they are a religion who came out of Catholicism and still likes the pomp and circumstance that Catholicism had. You know, they'll keep it. But Baptists and, and others, you know, they, kinda, they don't like the idea of bishop uh, because it's too closely attached to uh, Catholics. But it is a scriptural term. There is nothing wrong with calling a spiritual leader bishop. Uh, you would not be theologically um, wrong or false for saying, Bishop Smith, Bishop Russ, how are you doing today? I'd raise my eyebrow and say, you could just call me Russ. You don't have to call me Bishop. I would literally tell you that. But you wouldn't be wrong for telling me that. I would just feel awkward. And then I'll tell you why. Because as with many words, that one has been misused and abused, twisted, and, and the 21st century use of the word, I believe, is so far from the original use that I'm not interested in having it attached to my name. But if we were to understand the original word bishop and use it properly, it could be used just as effectively and endearing as the word pastor. Now, the word pastor is the English, you might say, uh, equivalent of the word shepherd. And so uh, when you call me Pastor Russ, you're basically calling me Shepherd Russ. Now, you may not know that. You may not understand the significance of the word attached to pastor. Maybe it's been mentioned to you, but you never thought about it. Consider this. How do you feel about calling me Shepherd Russ? Does it seem a little odd to you? Shepherd Russ? Well, if I'm the shepherd, who's the sheep? Well, you're the sheep. And, the, and, and a lot of pastors have a lot to say about that. And some, it said, I, I've heard it said as the pastor's job to shear the sheep. And that concerns me greatly. Shearing, having the idea of, you know, shaving off their hair because... If a sheep's hair keeps growing, they could, it could get overheated and, and get attacked by animals, and the wolves could chase it down because it can't move. So the pastor's job is to shear that excess hair off the sheep so the sheep can be spry and move quicker and not overheat in the, in the dead of summer. I don't see in Scripture where that, the Bible says shear the sheep. <laughs> it says teach the sheep, feed the sheep. And so... There are different types of shepherds, just as there are different types of parents and different types of bosses and different types of pastors, unfortunately. And there are those who think their job is to shear the sheep, and there are those who think it's their job to care for the sheep. Now, having said that, if you are the sheep and I am the shepherd, you don't belong to me. In the New Testament, we read about uh, shepherds who were under shepherds, or you might say given the task of caring for property olives or animals while the real owner is away. And so if I'm a shepherd of sheep, that is not a position of necessarily ownership. It's a position of service to the owner until he returns. And that's much different than the sheep belonging to me. Now, I don't know in many Baptist circles, Baptist, where a pastor would say, you're the sheep, I'm the shepherd, you belong to me. I don't think they would be bold enough to say that, even if they believed it. 
But they don't need to say it. Their actions prove what they really believe. Because when someone leaves a church and goes to another, and by the way, many of you here, most of you here left the church at some point and came here. In fact, I'm looking in the room. I don't think any of you have been here since the beginning. David, your family was here originally. You left and came back. But that's it. Every one of you left a church and came here for one reason or another, as did I leave a church and come here. And so just as folks have left churches and come here, we've had many, many people leave this church and go somewhere else. That's just is the nature, I think, of of the spiritual condition of man, (laughs) that there are times where you grow to a certain point in a church, and at that that certain point, you just can't grow there anymore. It's not that the church is weak or bad. There's just factors involved that your growth there is at an end, and that's even people here. People that were here, their growth time here was at an end, and they needed to go somewhere else to continue growing. That's one reason. I think another reason, good reason is, it wasn't about I couldn't grow there anymore, but I want to be used by God, and I couldn't be used at that church. That The position that I wanted to do wasn't there. In fact, I remember a woman some years ago saying, Pastor Russ, our family's going to a different church. I really feel called to, to be involved in a certain ministry, and that ministry just is not available at your church, and I, I really feel a strong calling in that. We're going to go to this church so I can be plugged into that ministry and do what I believe God's called me. And I said, hey, I, that's great. I wish you the best. You know, Don't be a stranger. Come and visit us anytime. It was a sweet parting. It was not that big of a deal. But here's my point. You'll know when a pastor thinks he's the owner of the sheep when every, when every time someone leaves, it's the end of the world. That when someone exits, they take it personally. It is a personal slight. It is a personal offense. How could you leave me after all I've done for you? After all my caring for you, you, you rebellious, selfish little sheep, leaving me the shepherd like No one will be as good as to you out there as I was to you. No one will do for you what I did for you. You'll never have it as you'll never have it it as good at any other church than you did here. (laughs) Things like that are said. I can tell you right now, they think they own the sheep. I was talking with some pastors the other week, and a pastor had stated that you know it's really hard in the ministry. The amount of discouragement that a pastor can feel is really hard, and um, and. And that one of the, the reasons pastors exit the ministry is just discouragement past recovery. They just can't deal with the discouragement. And he was, he was giving advice to some other young pastors and saying, so just make sure, guys, you understand ministry can be discouraging and prepare yourself for that and walk close with the Lord. And I think that's great advice. And I did state that. I said, but you've got to understand something, guys. Uh, oftentimes, we are discouraged for things we don't need to be discouraged about. And I said, one of them, and I find the most discouraging things most pastors go through and they don't even need to be discouraged about is when people leave the church. And I say pastors, when people leave the church, they take it personal and they just get overly depressed every time someone leaves. And and that's really hard to recover from, especially with some churches, the amount of revolving door that they see. I understand why the pastors leave the ministry. If they think that every time someone leaves, it's a personal attack, I don't think I could function with the amount of people that have left this church, if I thought everyone that left was attacking me personally, I'd be overwhelmed with grief. Fortunately for you and fortunately for me, I don't take it personally. (laughs) Fortunately for this church, if someone leaves, they belong to God, not me. (laughs) It is not the sheep leaving the fold. It is the sheep transferring to another location to still be under God for a reason God knows better than me. This is not the only location 
where sheep serve God. (laughs) This is not the only location where God feeds sheep. There are plenty of other churches where sheep are doing service for God and plenty of other locations where God is feeding sheep. And as long as when someone leaves, they go to another church to serve God and be fed by God through whatever spiritual leaders he's placed there, I'm a happy man. In all honesty, I can truly say, I wish you the best. You are loved. I hope to see you in the future. You're always welcome to come visit. We will not scowl at you if you come visit us for a service. I will not walk the other way at Walmart if I see you. I walk to you, shake your hand, give you a hug, say, I'm glad to see you. So happy. How are things going? Let's talk. I've missed you, not to make you feel bad, but to let you know you're loved. That you leaving didn't take my love with you. I still love you. I love you from afar because I'm not going to chase you down. I've got so much on my plate here. I can't focus on uh, well over 100 people that have left in 10 years. Well over 100. I can't focus on them. I'd never have time for you guys. Doesn't mean I don't love them, though. And if I see them, I, I have hugged them. I have said hi to them. I do talk to them. I ask about their family and their kids because they don't belong to me. But when a pastor thinks he's a shepherd, not the under-shepherd, not the servant shepherd, but he's the owner of the sheep, he's going to hurt the people, and he's inevitably going to hurt himself because they are going to leave. All right? There's no church where everyone stays the entire time. That's a cult. That just doesn't happen unless it's like a cult, and, and those are dangerous things, right? So pastor is a gift of the Spirit, but pastor is not the owner of the sheep. A pastor is a caretaker of God's sheep. And by the way, the pastor himself is also a sheep and needs to be cared for. (laughs) By who? The other sheep. Right? It's not like I'm Superman or anything. I, I love you guys, and I will serve you, and I will do whatever I can to help you. I am so very grateful that God has placed multiple families in this church I feel like this whole church loves myself and my wife. I don't feel unloved by anyone in the church. But there are multiple families who have made valiant efforts to return the love back to me and to care for my needs and my wife's needs and my kids' needs just as we care for your guys's. It's, it's, a, it's a give and take relationship. It is not an owner-owned scenario. It is a owned by God, caring and loving for each other. And God has given me the position of teacher and pastor and he's given you the position of discernment and, and, and other gifts we're going to talk about. And we all serve each other in these gifts and with these gifts. I don't belong to you, and you don't belong to me. We belong to God. Hopefully, you have a better, deeper understanding. We're going to pick up with Pastor. I'm still not done with Pastor because First Timothy 3 has a lot to say. We'll pick up with Pastor next Sunday and continue on to that phrase, teacher, talking about the difference between pastors and teachers and the difference between teachers and preachers. We'll have that conversation again. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'll see you next Sunday.